I'm former Congressman Gary Franks. And I'm his son, Gary. I'm millennial. We're discussing everything from politics to sports and pop culture. From very different perspectives. We speak frankly. Welcome back, folks. We are on We Speak Frankly, and we have our first guest of our show, Gary Jr. And yes, and I'm extremely guest, excited for her to be here today. And our first guest is the Lieutenant Governor of the great state of Florida, the former Lieutenant Governor, Jennifer Carroll, also a dear friend of mine from many, many years back. Before Jennifer was the lieutenant governor, she served seven years as a state rep. And we talked about state reps, Gary, in our prior shows extensively. But Jennifer was in the leadership role when she was the uh, state rep for the Jacksonville area of Florida. A small business owner as well. Plus, she was the executive director of the Florida Department of Veteran Affairs because Governor Carroll is also a lieutenant commander of the Navy. And I believe the Navy just celebrated their anniversary. That's right. I think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yep. I get notices of that from time to time since I was on Armed Services Committee many, many moons ago. She's an author, author of When You Get There, and also a political analyst for WJXT Channel 4 in, in Jacksonville, Florida. Without any further ado, it is great to have you on the show, Governor. And I tell you, it's it's been too long, and I just wanted to welcome you on the show and thank you again for being on the show. We're going to talk about a number of topics, but we're going to learn a lot about you. But we also want to uh, you know talk about what's going on as far as uh, the political landscape today. So welcome. Well, thank you so much, Gary. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for your service to our, our nation as a congressman, and thank you for what you're doing here to inform your audience about this, the landscape of politics and the myriad of topics that can empower their lives. And go Navy. The Navy celebrated 245th birthday on October 13th. I'm a proud 20-year yes. retiree mm-hmm. of the United States Navy, joined the Navy as an enlisted Jet mechanic, E1, the lowest rank you can ever have, and was able to go through the enlisted up to E5 and got my commission as an aviation maintenance officer. I joined the Navy back in 1979 when it was just the aviation community was just opening to females. So being a black female, being a female in a male dominated environment was not easy. However, I'm proud that God gave me the blessings to pave the way for other female, minority females and black females to come up through the ranks. And so I am truly blessed to have a wonderful husband of 37 years, three accomplished children with a grandbaby on the way any day now. Oh, wow. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I'm curious, how did you end up at the University of New Mexico? I'm just curious about that. I've never asked you that question before. Well, this is why people should know their geography. It was one of those education institutions that the Navy approved. There were 10 universities that the Navy approved for individuals like myself going from the enlisted rank to the officer rank, because to be an officer, you have to have a degree besides being Uh a U.S. citizen. And uh, through the enlisted commissioning program that I went through, that was one of the 10 host universities. And I thought, New Mexico, oh, nice and warm. So that's where I'm going to go to school. (laughs) And <laughs> to my surprise. <laughs> so 
So I always wondered about that. So that's a good program. I have a nephew who was in the Air Force, and now he's going to uh, the college via the use of the military program. And I just wondered how New Mexico came into play because it's so, you know, I, didn't rant, you know, I was like, New Mexico from New York. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we but look, a lot, of, for, we look at a lot of immigrants that, that came in from the Caribbean that most of us migrated because I was born in Trinidad. And, yeah. and my parents are from Trinidad and Tobago. And most of the migrants at that time came to New York, job opportunities, and it was yeah. a more friendly place. But now we've seen a lot of immigrants all over the place, really. Look at the, the Somalians that's coming in and, and the Middle Easterns that are coming in. They tend, tend to go out west somewhere. It's surprising because usually Miami, Florida, New York, California, but now they're migrating all over the place. Well, I'm going to let Gary Jr. ask you a question, but before you do, Gary, uh, it has to be noted that we have only had a handful of lieutenant governors of color and even fewer lieutenant governors who would be black females. And, and so this is a very big honor for us to have Governor Carol on our show because she was you know, just a true trailblazer through, throughout her career. And it's something that uh, my listeners really should take note of because one thing leads to the, to another. Today we have a, a black woman running for, for for vice president. You know, not that I support her because I don't. But we talked about that in, in prior episodes. But the point of it is that every time something happens, that kind of breaks the ceiling and opens up another door for others down the road. And and being lieutenant governor does pave the way for others to move to even a higher position in the future. So I, I um, once again wanted to make that notation to you, Gary, because, you know, I remember Jennifer when she ran for, for Congress. So maybe, <laughs> Jennifer, why don't you just tell Gary Jr. how we first met? Because it goes back a few years. Or... Oh, goodness. So you yeah. should tell him about our mutual friend, Corinne Brown. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you guys want to uh, start there? I'll, I'll tell one Corinne Brown story, and then I'll let, I'll let Jennifer tell another Corinne Brown story. Corinne Brown's a former congressman who was in jail until recently. Apparently, she just got out. Jennifer, because of COVID mm -hmm. just recently. She was sentenced to about, uh, I guess, to serve until 2022, but was because of COVID, was released early, earlier this year. But she was never a fan of mine, Gary. Uh, what happened was when I was down in Savannah, Georgia, fighting for something that was kind of, kind of basic today, I said that Black people do not need to be placed in a majority Black district in order to get elected. And today, the growth of the Congressional Black Caucus has come from Black members of Congress who represent majority white districts, like I did for six years. Well, Corrine didn't want to believe that, and she actually traveled to Savannah, Georgia, and is caught on TV from in front of about four TV cameras saying something absolutely ridiculous, such as, and Gary Frank doesn't represent the Black Caucus, and Gary Frank doesn't represent himself. I said, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. <laughs> how do you not represent yourself, you know, so, but I uh, never was impressed by Corey, and she always had this thing about whenever I was around, she left, and so when she, when I found out that someone of, of Jennifer's quality was running against her, I was, we all, everyone in Washington was just thrilled. <laughs> well, and you were up there with, um, well, you, you served with JC as well. Right. Yes, JC. I was. I served four years before JC, and JC arrived in '95. Mm -hmm. I started in '91. And you guys both had the pleasure of working with Corinne Brown. And you know, when I ran against her, and uh, and I say in my my autobiography, when you get there, have a 
a chapter about this in the political landscape because black Republicans running against a black Democrat in Democrat stronghold districts. And this was back in 1999 when I started the campaign election time was 2000 and Bill Clinton was in office. And this is how sometimes in the, in the, for an office coming out, you think that your party is going to be wholly behind you and support you and, the clear difference between that's one one thing that JC said you're overqualified for Congress because you know that you bring to the table. He introduced me to the uh, the Republican conference there, and back in the, my own state, I had the party vice chair that was against me. He's like, why why run against her? You're beating your head against the wall. And my take was, if you're not in the fight, if you're not in the ring, how would you know if you can't win? If you never even come out the box. And I shared with them, if you're going to cut under me before I even get started, how in the world am I going to win? And so what I found out later on is that you had some of these local business people, even the mayor himself, was uh-huh. giving her money because they feared her, her aggressiveness and how she bullied them and browbeat them to support her. And then, too, they figured with Bill Clinton being in office, she was going to be the conduit if they needed something to go to Uh Bill Clinton to get what they wanted. So it wasn't about the party and expanding the the role of uh, diverse representation on the Republican side. It was all about them and their money and their power and position. And we're seeing that play out today, that it's, it's so sad to see that the emphasis and the, and the power and position is not to give to the people and have the people have great representation. It's all about the people that already have power want more power or mm-hmm. they want to take away power from those that they feel that are coming into their pathway that they feel that could diminish their power. And that was mm-hmm. not the role and should not be the role of government. And, and you know, people say every election cycle that this election is the most critical election, but from serving in government at the state level, serving as lieutenant governor, understanding now that I've seen from within the belly of the beast of, of politics and how it's the people that, the majority of people that are representing folks, they're not representing folks at all. It's not a statesman. It's about the next position, the next level, the contacts that they can make and the power goes to the head. And, and it once was said, the power corrupts absolutely and it certainly does Uh and it's up to Uh people to make sure that these folks that they elect to office are truly representing them and giving them the power the power belongs to the people and with civics being taken out of our classroom and and the rewriting of history unfortunately our millennials and the ones coming up after them don't know or not understanding the role of government and the role of government is not to be the replacement of your mom and dad so it's so important mm-hmm. that the people we elect to office, their policies is what we should be looking at, not so much the party nowadays, because we have 48 on one side, 48 on another, and then you have a mush in between that when people are so polarized, there's nothing that will come about with good governance to benefit the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Jeff, I want to touch upon one point. When you, when you got started, so you had a lot of resistance from the Republican Party when you got started. I, I did, did too. You know, I did too. My, my battles were, you know, I had a lot of battles with the Republicans and then on a number of, of levels. When I was a city councilman, I, I uh, had battles with the Republicans. In fact, uh, ended up sending 11 of them to jail, my testimony, mm-hmm. you know, so, <laughs> but that's another story for another day. But I, I wonder, I, I wonder why they, um, 
they were discouraging you just because they had someone else in mind to run against her, but because your credentials are just so phenomenal, why would they want to discourage you? Is it just that, uh, in my case, I wasn't supposed to be the nominee. They had four other guys. They had a former congressman's brother who wanted to get the one to run for Congress. They had a state senator. They had a they had a state rep who had run, you know, eight years before. They had a guy who used to work for for Lee Atwater who wanted to run for Congress. So all these other, you know, the slew of people out there, four others who who were all handpicked to be the be the person. Here I was, a little black alderman representing Waterbury and it, and something that had never happened before because no one had ever been elected in an overwhelmingly white district. My district was 4% black. And so, you know, I wasn't supposed to be there. In your situation, though, they should have been just thrilled that you, you, you had the desire to run for Congress. But Gary, that's common sense. And common sense isn't so common. Back then, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> back then okay. when I, I ran, it was all about access. Access got to the you. White I House. She was I a Democrat. Democrats were in control. Democrats were in the you. presidency. And I'm telling you, she was such a, to me, and I hate to be derogatory on, on the show, but she was such a zero in Congress. I don't think she did a damn thing, mm -hmm. quite frankly. So they, she sold them a bill of goods because she was not an effective member of Congress, period. She, she was very aggressive. You know, she she would browbeat these people and they feared her because she also had the, the pastors, the black pastors behind her. So if she wanted to okay. boycott something or stomp in the office and get all these black folks to come to I these, got these white people's offices, they'll get all scared and give her what she wants. I got you. I got you. What happened then, Jennifer? Did, did you decide to run for state rep or did you, a few years went by and then you went for state rep? Well, and, and that's why I encourage people to get my book. They can get it on jennifercarroll.com. Yeah. Uh, number, number one Amazon bestseller. Yeah. And uh, in, in my story, I, I, I neglected to tell you this. So in running in mm -hmm. 2000, even though I didn't have my full party support, it helped George Bush get elected because in my district, they had 27,000 ballots that had overvotes for the president. They voted for Gore and Brown, but uh -huh. it wasn't Corinne Brown because when people were being taken to the polls by the Democrat operatives, they were chanted to, to vote Gore Brown. But we had about 16 candidates running for president and uh -huh. one of them was Harry Brown, the libertarian candidate. Oh, and so therefore, <laughs> between Gore and Libertarian Harry Brown, those spoiled ballots were thrown out. And oh. after a recount on top of recount, George Bush ended up getting 500 and some odd more votes at the final recount. Had wow. those 27,000 ballots stood, we would have had a Gore presidency. Wow. Although they didn't so, want me in the race, being uh -huh. in the race helped the Republicans get elected. So, wow, I never knew that story. You better buy my book. That means you didn't read what, my book. Yeah, you know, it's your county. I'm still going to show my ignorance. Your county, Duval County? That's correct. Yeah, I remember, I remember all of that. Okay. But to tell you, after the election, Jeb Bush appointed me to the... Um, to be the executive director of Florida Department of Veterans Affairs. So mm. uh, during my okay. stint there, an open seat came about in my area between Jacksonville and Clay County. I have two counties that I, that I represented. And mm -hmm. many of the folks in my district didn't want the, the school chair of the school mm -hmm. board. To, they didn't like her. So they came mm -hmm. to me asking me would I run for that seat. And mm -hmm. they said, I'll get behind. I said, listen, I've been down this road before. Y'all didn't support me the last time. What's going what's to be different this time? Yeah. But even at that, it was more the, the business people in my community that were supporting me. So I decided to run for the seat, but still did not get the party's full support. Even mm. the lobbyists and the party in Tallahassee 
was telling folks because I ran and, and it was not successful in my congressional campaign. And this other person had, was already successful in running and she's a chair of the school board. She uh -huh. will have an upper hand over me. And then on top of that, she was a white woman. So uh -huh. they were also putting the word out that this area that have like some rednecks would not vote for a black woman. Mm, but I won okay. with over 80% of the votes between the wow. Duval and Clay County and never had an opponent being elected as their representative because I represented everybody. It didn't matter if they voted for me or not. My policies were to benefit them. And I had mm -hmm. an open door policy. I had anybody can, can reach me. And I've communicated with my district with everything. If I was going to vote against a bill and my initiatives came from the citizens. What their initiative was, was my bills that I pushed through for them. Mm -hmm. And that's how it should that, be. Yeah, that's how it should be. Very that is interesting. So the yeah. Val County, all that, wow. So this guy who was running, whose name was Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Never knew that. And it, it caused that type of confusion. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I tell you, I, I'm going to make a comment about Jeb. You know, I think the world of Jeb, I, I think he's a great governor. His father, had it not been for his father, I would never have been elected because his father took me under his wing. And, and the bottom line of it is when I was running, I've probably shared this with you before, no one gave me a chance of winning. You know, the, the, basically what the comment was because you're black, white people aren't going to vote for you. And because you're Republican, black people aren't going to vote for you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but it was it was George H.W. Bush who actually came into my district to do a fundraiser for me. And then he told his whole cabinet to come up. And every time a cabinet member came up, Bennett came up like three times, Jack Kemp about three times, Liz Dole twice. Every time they came up, we raised twenty, fifteen, thirty thousand, forty thousand dollars. And so when I had that type of win behind me, I was able to I wasn't able to outspend my opponent, but at least I was able to compete with my, my opponent on TV. So that that was a very unusual election where George H. W. Bush really got out on the limb and did so. And and right after I got elected, he tied me into his son Jeb, and I and Jeb was a friend from that moment on. And and when I did a little, I had a book back out in ninety four, ninety five, yeah, during that period of time. And and Jeb accompanied me on the, my book tour when I in Florida. So he, we've been just dear friends for forever, really. In fact, funny part of it is when the president was in my district, he said, even if you lose this race, I want you to get in touch with with Jeb because he's going to be going places. He never mentioned George W. <laughs> he never mentioned George W. He said Jeb, 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 Jeb. Every other word was Jeb, 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 Jeb. George W. never even came through his, never heard the word. I didn't even really have another son named George W., quite frankly, at that time, back in 91. But um, I had to share that story with you. So then you just climbed up the ranks within the uh, state legislature, though, pretty quickly, though. Yeah. Well, it was, it, was pretty, uh, mm -hmm. it was a special election. So the, it was mm -hmm. a deputy minority le majority leader that left, Connie Mack, that left and ran oh, for Congress. Oh, yeah. So his position, his leadership position in the Florida legislature in the House uh, was vacant. And Johnny Byrd, who was the Speaker of the House at the time, took a liking to, to my leadership and, and my qualities and, and, and uh, knowledge and put me into those leadership positions and never turned back. And that as you talk cool. about the Bushes, I, I love the Bushes. Uh, I had two appointments on the President Bush. Uh -huh. And as a matter of fact, when he sought for a military person to put on the Veterans Disability Compensation Commission, he said, he told his staff, can you find Jeb's girl in Florida? <laughs> 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 and, and then he put me on the scholarship commission.
I am serving on the President Trump's a commission uh-huh. him for uh, the American Battles Monuments Commission. Mm-hmm. But uh, Governor Bush was one of the, I would say, the best governor the state has had. Yeah. And his leadership style is all about empowering people and making sure he's visionary for the state. When we went through 911, I was serving under him at the time. I remember that morning of 911. I had just briefed the governor and cabinet on my agency's uh, budget and what we were doing. And as I wrapped up my presentation, the uh, Florida Department of Law Enforcement came into the governor, whispered in his ears, whisked him away. And now having a little complex, like, is this something I said? You know, <laughs> not knowing that the uh, the second tower was hit and now we're all hands on deck, code red. But um, the governor, for his working directly with him, Governor Bush, I can certainly say that he was one of those leaders that was all about empowering people so that they can rise to the next level. Yeah. Well, the family's like that. Barbara Bush, and you know, great lady as well. And they're just... You know, Deb's grandfather used to be a senator in Connecticut. Prescott Bush Sr., George H.W. Bush's father, was a senator in Connecticut. So they have very, very strong roots in Connecticut. George W. Bush was born in New Haven, Connecticut. And so um, they're just very special people. George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush, not with us today, but will always be uh, remembered and in my heart for forever because they meant so much to me as well. Uh, Gary, you want to? Ask the governor a question. Following three terms on the city council and three terms in Congress, former Congressman Gary Franks' consulting firm has helped scores of companies, large Fortune 500 firms, small businesses, and even startup companies secure millions of dollars in federal government contracts and international business opportunities. Congressman Franks, a Yale grad, author, Fortune 500 executive, and former visiting professor at Georgetown University UVA, and Hampton University will use his knowledge, experience, relationships, and strategic plan model to help you reach that next level of success. Schedule your participation in an upcoming webinar to learn just how Congressman Franks can help you. For more information, email gary at garyfranks.org now. So, Governor, um, when you first got into politics, uh, what made you want to become a Republican? Well, nothing made me want to become a Republican when I got into politics, I was already a Republican. And when I got my naturalization is when I registered as a Republican. So, Governor, what did you, um, I'll give a little bit of my background here. I actually worked with a lot of military members, and I always ask them, on what got you to uh, want to join uh, the military? In my instance, and joining the military was purely selfish. It was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We thank you for your service. Yes, we do. Thank you for your service. It it was an honor and a privilege, but I knew nothing of the service other than what I saw on Gomer Pyle on TV. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That show was, oh no, Gomer had his own show, but it started out as as Andy Griffin show, right? No, it was the reverse. As Gomer Pyle, and then he, he went, he went into the Andy Griffith show, I think. Oh, okay. And, but 
I thought, number one, that it was rather neat, the environment. Number two, I came from a very strict household. My parents who raised me were my adopted parents, and I was the only child, and I could not even breathe without asking for permission. It was so strict. (laughs) And my parents said, after I graduated from high school, I'll be able to go away to college. And I was very cognizant of the, the love and support that my parents gave me. And I never wanted to make them feel regretful of taking me in and raising me. And so I was always mindful of that. And you, I, I say more about that in, in my autobiography. But when I went to find out which uh, element of the, which military branch I wanted to join, I fell in love with the uniform for the Navy. It was a salt and pepper. So that's the salt and pepper uniform is a white top, black bottoms. Yeah. And <laughs> it looked really sharp to me. And I always want to look good. So that was, <laughs> that's why I chose the Navy. <laughs> Interesting. But then you, you're, you're a mechanic, a jet mechanic? Correct. I went into the aviation field. Yeah. How, did you have natural skills there or just trained or i was a little tomboy because i thought that the things that my my father piddled with everything he did a little bit mechanic work masonry work plumbing work you name it my father did it and did it well so i thought as an only child i thought the work that my dad did was more interesting than the stuff that my mom wanted me to do of ironing and cleaning (laughs) and cooking oh that that was horrible but it's so hard to see you as a tomboy though i tell you i wasn't a tomboy tomboy in that sense you know i was still feminine but I, th- I thought that the things that my dad was doing was more. I got you. I got you. Okay. So I, I would follow him and do, oh, I was mimic everything he did. And I uh-huh. knew that I, when I joined the military, I didn't want the, the typical female jobs of a nurse or administration. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and that's why I, gra- I was a non-rate when I came into the Navy. So I can feel around to other um, areas of the job, uh, the different jobs that there were that was available. But fortunately for me, when I went to my command in Hawaii, they put me in the line shack and in the line shack had a number of mechanics, the other, the other, um, um, airmen with me. Mm-hmm. And I gravitated to the chief petty officer that was in charge. He was in charge of the line shack. The line shack mm-hmm. was, you know, when you look at the airplanes out, when the airplane is, is taxiing into the gate and you see the, the person with the wand, wand in the plane. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the military, we didn't have different people doing those things. You had the same person, you put the chalk, then you end up fueling the, the, the aircraft and, and cleaning it down and servicing it before it went out for its next flight. So that's mm-hmm. what I did as an airman. On the line shack, the chief petty officer in charge of that group of workers was also a mechanic. And he was mm-hmm. in charge of the mechanics. And on every Thursday, we had training day. Mm-hmm. And when I, he was training the mechanics, I went to his training. And I, oh. I just fell in love with the, with the job. And that's how wow. I And I took I, every exam, ever since I joined the Navy, every rank I excelled to, I had to take an exam to pass mm-hmm. it. It was an exam based on, on your skills of knowledge of the job. And it also came with your evaluation and everything else so you can get promoted on, until I became, became an officer. There was no exam then. It was just a matter of uh, going through the officer candidate school and having your degree and getting your commission and going out into the world to be in leadership positions. 
but that was my take in joining the oh. Navy to begin with. So it's all okay. selfish. It was all selfish. <laughs> no, we, we thank you for your services. And climbing the ranks from an E1 all the way through, I mean, that is really impressive. Uh -huh. yeah. Extremely, extremely impressive. That's all the time we have for today. We'll be back next time with the rest of our interview with the former Lieutenant Governor of Florida, Jennifer Carroll. Don't forget to subscribe.